Welcome to today's episode of Interpretation of Literature, brought to you by the University of Iowa. On today's episode, we will be taking it back to the 18th century and exploring society's most mysterious and popular event, the Masquerade Ball. As always, we have our very special co-host, Tyler Leitner, who will be answering some questions and offering his own interpretation of literature. Right, let's dive right into the episode and start by talking about who's who of the ball. Tyler, what do you know about masquerade balls and who are some standout figures that were popular in attendance? Well, Megan, it's always great to be on the episode. Information about 18th century masquerade balls are few and far between. However, as popular parties or who's who events of today's time go, anyone who's someone is surely in attendance. Georgian era wordpress.com states that media the media liked to cover the events during the 18th century but it was rather difficult to do so Surely I know if I could get my hand on a ticket I would be first in line to go The event seemed fun and exciting in a way and especially today you never get a chance to be that close to royalty or celebrities but back then it was common for the average person that could afford a ticket to be at such an event What was so unique about these events was that due to the fact that masks were worn, it was easy to be discreet, and your identity could be hidden throughout the whole night. So back to our first segment of who's who at the ball, I guess it's impossible to truly know, as those at the ball didn't even really know themselves. Alright, now Tyler, I did see somewhere that masks were often removed by some of the higher ranking society members, and why do you think that is? Well, certainly for some, they wanted to show off their identity, as family power and whatnot was a big deal back then. But I'm sure any celebrity or royal family member today wishes they could have a discreet ball and keep their identity masked for an entire evening, don't you? Most definitely, Tyler. A celebrity in our time can't even go out and get a slice of pizza without having themselves flocked by the paparazzi. I know it's always been a big issue within the holiday and sports industry, so I'm sure they'd love a night on the town without any cameras in their face or storylines in the media the next morning. Well, this conversation certainly reminds me of a scene from the play, Much Ado About Nothing, where characters Antonio and Ursula go to a masquerade ball. Ursula, who is Hero's servant, is found dancing with whom she believes is a character she has met before, Antonio. Ursula states, I know you well enough. You are Signor Antonio, where Antonio responds, At a word, I am not. This is where the mystery sets in and leads to anticipation of the characters in dancing throughout the night, when Ursula responds, I know you by the waggling of your head. Ooh, I like the mystery that's going on for sure. So even though Ursula thinks she knows it's Antonio behind the mask, she can never really confirm. I think it would be fun to have a night of complete mascadarity, even if someone was like, oh, look at the way he walks. That's gotta be Tyler Leitner. Aha, very funny, Megan. Well, let's move on from who's who of the masquerade ball to the history behind the popular event. All right, so... Any event as popular as the Masquerade Ball from many centuries ago is always fascinating to me, typically typically because they derive from a unique story and background. When looking at Masquerade Balls in particular, origins date back all the way to the Middle Ages. 
It was at this time that Christians would observe carnival season. This was the last chance to indulge on all the food and wine possible before fasting for Lent. People held parades, wore masks, and danced in the streets. All social restrictions were cast aside, and the poor were able to mingle with the wealthy. In addition to giving up meat, Christians were supposed to abstain from unholy acts during Lent. As a result, trysts with mass strangers were permitted to put these desires to rest. In the early 1700s, a Swiss man named John James Heidegger traveled to England where he revamped the balls into more extravagant affairs. After impressing King George II with his operas, Heidegger used masquerades as a way to promote high fashion to the public. People were inspired by the glamour and masquerades became games for guests to figure out each other's identities. Wow, Megan, I was not aware of that background and how masquerade balls came to what they were commonly known as. Times were certainly different back then, and I'm not sure if other than New Year's Eve that anyone goes out as a last hurrah before starting the new year. Megan, can I ask what it was like for someone who was preparing to go to one of these events? Well, as far as preparation for any big event goes, it typically involves shopping. According to hhhistory.com, Stores and shops across town were specifically set up to sell dresses or attire for these events. A popular dress or cloak called the domino that covered the whole body was sold for only 15 euros in today's money. Haha, I would love to see you in one of these domino dresses, and I am a little surprised that outfits weren't designed for uniqueness, sort of like prom dresses are today. Very funny. I think I'd look great. Did you know that there were a lot of people opposed to masquerade balls during the 18th century as well? I did not. Would you tell me more? Well, we talked a bit before about how identity throughout the evening was hidden, so it was pretty common for some suspicious activity to occur throughout the long night. After all, these events would begin around 7 or 8 o'clock and last until the morning. According to jerrywalton.com, sharpers and prostitutes attended in nightly scenes of robbery, heated quarrels, and scandals occurred amongst partygoers. With proper disguise, it was possible to step into a different world in which you typically did not belong. After many events led to total chaos, there was a beginning of the anti-masquerade protesters. Clergymen, moralists, and journalists who argued masquerade balls were salacious events that encouraged immorality and sexual transgression, as well as homosexuality, adultery, and prostitution. The anti-masquerade movement grew slowly, and then the Lisbon earthquake happened in 1755. Anti-masqueraders declared the earthquake occurred because of sin. They also decried masquerade balls were part of the reason the world was so corrupt. Their vocal opposition was heard and heated in England. Masquerade balls were banned the following year because of the outcry and because George II also opposed them. Kind of crazy to think that some thought the cause of an earthquake was due to misbehavior performed during a masquerade ball. I am sure that because identity was kept hidden throughout the night, that those things you mentioned did indeed occur. It's too bad, however, that the events couldn't keep going on, just with a little restriction from absurd behavior like that. It really is too bad. I completely agree. Going off of the chaos that would emerge at some of these balls, it specifically ties into one of the plays I read this semester titled The Rover, which was written by the famous 18th century author Aphra Bain. 
In this play, they are not said to be at a masquerade ball, but instead they are in attendance at a carnival, which was known to hold the same stereotype of concealing one's identity. Lucetta, a sneaky whore featured in the play, seems to lure in a foolish English gentleman, known as Blunt, and cheats him of all his clothes and belongings. See, it's really interesting that you mentioned that, because clearly it was common for scandals like that to occur, especially if a famous author, like Aphrobane, included whores and prostitutes in her own play to represent how common it was. Now, Megan, going back to the ball itself, could you paint a picture of what the masquerade ball looked like once a partygoer got inside? Of course. Well, actually, Tyler, it was common for some balls that were held in the summer to be completely outdoors, and those around the holidays and New Year's to be located inside. According to jerrywalton.com, the Pantheon and Regency in London, along with some events held in Versailles, Italy, are just a few of the more popular known locations of these events. Ballrooms were often decorated with extravagant lights for guests to stay late through the night, Eating, drinking, and gambling was also acceptable and carried a strong atmosphere of festivity, noise, and happiness. Supper was usually included with masquerade balls, and the meals were served anywhere from midnight to 2, 3, or even 6 in the morning. I'm not sure I can make it out for a supper that was served at 6 in the morning. In addition to that, they kept the hidden identity as a main theme of the ball. Masquerade balls were sometimes set as a game amongst the guests. The masked guests were supposedly dressed so as to be unidentifiable. This would create a type of game to see if a guest could determine each other's identities. This would also add a humorous effect to many masquerades and enabled a more enjoyable version of typical balls. Lots of interesting aspects to these masquerades and still so much that I'm sure we are not aware of, Tyler. Now that we are down to the end of our conversation, what is one takeaway that you want our listeners to grasp today? Well, I think it would have to be that times were certainly different back then. A masquerade ball is just the beginning to show that, and a part of the culture or society of the 17th and 18th century Europe. However, even though times were different, the large social gathering aspect hasn't changed, and people still enjoy congregating to celebrate a variety of things, and I think that's what the balls were really made for. Good point made there, Tyler. Well, as always, it's been a pleasure to work with you, and I hope, for those listening, we made these mysterious events seem a little more understandable to you. We are always honored to speak on interpretation of literature brought to you by the University of Iowa, and we will see you on next week's episode. (laughs) 